0: You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State lawmakers return to do the people's work as a session kicked off this week. Among the top priorities is our housing crisis. HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us to talk about that. Good morning, Noe.
1: Good morning, Catherine. You know, when I talked with Senator Chang about this, he is the Senate Housing chair. He said one of his favorite quotes is that in America, we can always be counted on to do the right thing after we've exhausted every other possibility. Mm-hmm. And with homelessness, you know, that that kind of applies. Emergency tent shelters, temporary shelters, social programs. The one thing we haven't done is build more affordable homes. And when we look at that Kaka'ako, Kapi'olani corridor, we think, come on, there's a lot of units out there, right? But We've been thinking and hoping we could get enough affordable housing as a percentage of what developers were pitching us. In fact, in 2021, 435 affordable units were funded as of September, and that's only 8% of what we need, according to DBED. We're supposed to be adding 5,000 affordable units a year to meet demand. Housing advocates and lawmakers say, we really have got to do things differently. And we're going to start off just looking at a couple of approaches we're going to be seeing at the ledge this session. First off, Senator Stanley Chang chairs that housing committee in the Senate. Last fall, he arranged a series of briefings on housing solutions. And it was kind of cool chance to learn about four cities, Singapore, Hong Kong, Vienna, and Houston, that have approached their housing problems in really different ways. I mean, Houston has no zoning. <laughs> but in Singapore, over 80% of the people live in public housing. That's over 5 million people. Most own their own units, 99 year leases. Importantly, the government offers savings programs for housing. But the whole thing is the, there's no real estate speculation per se. Land is a social aspect. And, you know, the housing isn't called affordable housing, low income housing, it's called social housing. Senator Chang says income limits to qualify for housing tend to limit a project in other ways.
2: I don't support income restrictions. I think income restrictions are un-American. If the billionaire's family wants to live next door to a formerly homeless family, we should embrace that. If the billionaires were living in public housing, you better believe that public housing would be very well maintained. Social housing is not just for the poor. It is for everybody, rich or poor. And that's one of the key innovations that I think has made both Singapore and Vienna public housing so successful because they don't concentrate poverty. They don't have cyclical poverty, violence, and so many of the issues that we associate with American public housing, because once you move in, it doesn't matter what your income is. You could be a billionaire. In Singapore, the president of Singapore used to live in public housing until she was forced to move out due to security concerns. So I think that is one of the key innovations that we have yet to embrace in the United States, but which is going to be critical in a successful housing plan for the 21st century
0: here.
1: Kind of a mind bender, right? Yes. No income restrictions to purchase government subsidized housing.
0: I think that concept too of of uh, concentrating poverty is an uh, interesting way to look at it.
1: Right, it hasn't worked. So he's pitching his aloha homes project saying the state could start with 500 units 502 bedroom units at four to five hundred thousand dollars 99 year lease he thinks it can get done he says he's found a revenue neutral way to do it the idea would be the state would throw in the land and he would like to concentrate it around you know the rail stations transportation the idea is the state owns the land where you can plan groceries, cafes, drugstores, right around there. Everything in a 15-minute walk with bus routes fanning out, bikeways to the senator thinks Aloha Stadium site would be perfect. Chang is also proposing creating a Department of Housing at the state and a 5% down payment mortgage that would be backed by the state.
0: Well, what if you do if you can't afford you know a home that costs a half a million dollars?
1: <laughs> right. Luckily, housing advocates. All around the state have been putting it together in the last year to, to come at this legislative session. On Maui, the Maui County Comprehensive Affordable Housing Plan, they're trying to get 5,000 affordable homes on Maui in five years, and they have figured it all out how to do it. They get, they're like back timing now. Hats off to Hawaiian community assets there because it was all the people who've been trying to do it on the ground engineers, planners, financiers to figure out how to do it. They said, you got to start by committing the subsidy funds to make affordable housing available. And where are they looking to get the money? Property taxes. Mm. In, in an election year. But look, I mean, it just really floors people, investors, when they find out Hawaii has the lowest property tax rate in the U.S. I mean, even though our median home value, right, among the highest, right? So what a deal. I mean, somebody told me the other day, oh, yeah, Hawaii's like a beautiful girl in a bikini. <laughs> and Maui has the lowest county property taxes in the state. Here on Oahu, advocates are looking at an empty homes tax because we need 20,000 units. There are 85,000 empty housing units. That's the empty housing stock on Oahu. And they're also looking at raising the minimum wage. Every housing advocate is looking at that too
0: Yeah, that's definitely uh, high on the priority of many uh, lawmakers this year, the minimum wage. Uh, But thanks so much, Noe. We'll see where these proposals go. I know. It's going to be quite a year. We have been talking with HPR's Noe Tanagawa, who is tracking housing and homelessness issues here on HPR. Honolulu Civil Beats reality check today turns to focus on the hot-button vacation rental issue here on Oahu. The Honolulu City Council took up the issue yesterday in a special meeting. Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad.
3: Good morning, Catherine, and Aloha Friday. Yes,
0: we love it when it's Aloha Friday, don't we? (laughs) So this meeting, yeah, a special meeting of the uh, uh, zoning committee.
3: Right, Brendan Elefante is the chair. And by the way, this is Christina Jedras, Story. I'm filling in. She's off doing more important things, but I knew that it was important to be here (laughs) to talk about really a a vexing issue, what to do with these short-term rentals. Uh, You might recall that Mayor Blangiardi introduced Bill 41 last year. His goal is to crack down, really to eliminate these short-term rentals, to regulate. So under that proposal, you couldn't book for less than 180 days, right? Uh, they were going to increase some fees and some fines. Uh, they were also going to make sure that uh, some condo operators are more like hotel rooms in the way they operate. Well, it's the bill has really gotten a lot of pushback, as you can imagine, from folks like Expedia and Airbnb. So what Elefante has proposed is tweaking that bill, Bill 41. He's been in consultation with the Department of Planning and Permitting there at the city. And so they're looking at maybe Making some changes. We mentioned that 180 day booking window. You know, why don't you change that to 90 days, cut that in half? The current booking window, by the way, is 30 days. So that's one thing that it's looking at doing. Maybe modifying the amount of fees that are charged, renewal fees, and, and there's a few other tweaks as well. But all in all, the goal for Elefante is to have a fair and enforceable law. But even then, yesterday, or th- this was on Thursday at the council. It was a mixed reaction, and there's still pushback uh, from uh, folks like Expedia, Airbnb, folks that want to continue operating these, these rental units for tourists.
0: And, you know, a lot of folks uh, are saying you should have just uh, passed uh, the uh, proposal that was uh, in the works uh, with the previous mayor, Mayor Caldwell.
3: But you're talking about Bill eighty nine and, mm-hmm. and that that bill too was also very controversial. That was back in twenty nineteen. The idea there was that you were gonna be able to well, basically allow about seventeen hundred of these short term uh, units, residential excuse me, rental units to be in residential areas, but you'd have a big fine, ten thousand dollars a day if somebody's in violation. But part of the deal was that you had to have a an MOU, a memorandum of understanding between groups like these uh, short-term rentals and, and and the city and county to help enforce basically to let them know where these units are and, and and what they're doing but that MOU deal fell apart DPP never did issue the permits for those 1700 or so units so Dean uh, Uchida the head of uh, DPP says that's moot that that deal is is off the table right now, but there are people that still think, you know, that might have been the better way to go.
0: Well, you know, the, this vacation rental issue is a problem across the state, uh, and mm. I guess they're on Kauai. Uh, they have been working with those platforms, Expedia and, and Airbnb.
3: And Airbnb. In fact, that was brought up uh, yesterday as well, and, and under this agreement with Kauai County, they were able to reduce, I believe the figure was about 1,500 uh, illegal units down to 50. Could uh, Oahu do the same? Of course, Oahu is much larger, far more many of these units in operation in neighborhoods like Kailua and the North Shore. But, you know, Esther Kiyina, one of the council members, pointed out hey, over there on Kauai, it's a 180 day booking rule. Not 30, not 90, 180 days makes it a little bit easier uh, to, to regulate, to control over there on the Garden Island.
0: Yeah. And, you know, so there's lots of uh, pushback from the folks that uh, are renting now or were renting even pre-pandemic. But, you know, we know that uh, uh, Mayor Blangiardi, you know, says that we've got to do something uh, because he does want to, uh, you know, work something out with the uh, hotel tourism folks.
3: Right. But, you know, then you have the folks and I'll mention Expedia again because they were testifying, saying, you know, this is a this is a giveaway to the hotel industry which already has a monopoly here on these on tourism and really what you're doing is you're proposing radical changes with a, a bill 89 or a bill 41 and what you're doing is maybe uh, hurting people that are trying to recover from the economic uh, downfall downturn that we've had these last few years. So whether you, or not you can come up with a compromise on that, this will be the challenge. According to Christina's report, uh, it's back in the Zoning Committee, and we'll see where Bill for, uh, 41 goes or doesn't go.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you and I know this is a hot-button issue for sure down at the, at yes, the council. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. To read Christina Jedra's full story, visit civilbeat.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Queens Island Urgent Care, treating non-life-threatening illnesses and injuries at six locations across Oahu. Walk-ins welcome. Learn more at queens.org. This week on Science Friday, how to appreciate pigeon mating calls and why. Sort of like...
4: I don't think I'm going to win any pigeon wives.
2: And identifying what lives in the zoo from stuff caught in an air filter.
4: And it turns out it's absolutely full of DNA and it's just floating around us.
2: All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this
5: afternoon at one.
2: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative.
0: Not every day you get a $50 million gift, but that's just what happened. The University of Hawaii announced this week that Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook Metafame are donating the money to go toward research at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. UH says it's the largest cash donation it's received to date. We talked with Chip Fletcher, Interim Dean of SOEST, about how this will help us deal with the impacts of climate change. Fletcher feels the need is urgent, and he's grateful as the gift will build on the good work of Hawaii scientists already underway during these challenging times.
5: It's a big moment in human history. I think of this decade, this decade that we're in right now, as the single most important decade in all of human evolution. Why do you think that? Well, if we don't get this right, if we don't control our greenhouse gas emissions, we're looking at a future where our Socioeconomic framework under which our human communities trade with each other, under which food and secu- food and water security is is managed, human health, just the whole socioeconomic framework is at risk. Um, so we've warmed so far a little more than one degree Celsius above the pre-industrial global. Average surface temperature. And one degree Celsius does not sound like much, but when you experience a one degree Fahrenheit rise in your body temperature or a two degree Fahrenheit rise in your body temperature, which is roughly equivalent to one degree Celsius, one plus change, you don't feel good. You're running a low grade fever. So a small amount of temperature change in a closed system like our metabolism. Or a clo- essentially closed system like the Earth's surface temperature and all the ecosystems that rely on the surface temperature means an enormous amount in terms of the functioning and equilibrium and health of that system. And it's been shown that with one additional degree of warming, we risk displacing 1 billion people on this planet from where they currently live, largely around the tropics on the continents. Their food and water security becomes so poor that they can no longer safely stay where they currently are, and they're forced to move. And as we set in motion, and we already have set in motion, millions of people who are looking for new homelands – They move into communities which are already stressed and under-resourced, and you develop conflict situations, especially at borders. So you've heard of Brexit, the effort of the United Kingdom to withdraw from the European Union. That has its roots in Syrian refugees displaced by war in Syria, which has its roots in a thousand-year drought – which was partially caused by climate change. So Brexit is a political reaction to climate migrants that had to move because the farming economy in Syria collapsed under this drought that led to families, millions of families moving into the urban areas of Syria where they found a corrupt government and that led to a civil war. And this is, a, this is an old story. It's, it's a 10 it's year old story that's well known And it's an example of how climate change upsets food and water security and displaces communities. And and lastly, the World Bank came out with a report about a month or two ago projecting that by mid-century we're going to be looking at up to 250 million people displaced within their own borders, within their own borders by mid-century, within the next 30 years. So you're troubled
0: by these times that we live in, and you just feel passionate that we have to change course.
5: Yeah, we need to change course. We need to stop emitting greenhouse gases. And this decade, the pathway to a safe climate future is a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions worldwide by 2030, by the end of this decade. And we had a recession caused by COVID in 2020. But Now we know that 2021, just last year, we saw a near recovery, uh, about a 5% return of our greenhouse gas emissions after about a 6% decline in greenhouse gas emissions in 2020. So, you know, 2020 was a time when nations around the world infused their local economies with stimulus money to counteract the recession caused by the pandemic. And... We had an opportunity to invest in renewable energy and displace fossil fuel energy. But we did that to some degree, but not as much as we should have to counteract this problem of greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Well, we do have this gift of $50 million uh, that, you know, aims to improve our Ocean health. How are you looking at that, and, and as we try and you know come to grips with what's what's happening with climate change?
5: So this is a fantastic gift to the University of Hawaii at Manoa uh, from Patricia Chan and Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, their foundation made this seven-year, fifty million-dollar uh, grant to us in the area of marine conservation, and we're going to be using this money in multiple ways. We're going to be deploying. Autonomous sail drones, which travel across the ocean surface, driven by the wind. These are actually advanced sensors that will be collecting and sending back to us information on dissolved carbon dioxide, uh, sea surface temperature, uh, the CO2 in the air, um, dissolved nutrients in the ocean waters, information on currents and winds, We're also going to be deploying uh, buoys that at fixed locations will be doing the same thing. All of this data will be coming back and feeding into a regional ocean modeling system called ROMS. This modeling system will be trained and assimilate this real-time data and become one of the world's most sophisticated Nearshore water modeling systems, and it will be run through the University of Hawaii Oceanography Department, as well as the Pacific Island Ocean Observing System, which is a NOAA-funded research group here at SOEST. Uh, SOEST is the acronym for the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology.
0: This data then will help us what actually forecast, you know, what's going on with the ocean.
5: Yes, we'll be able to project changes. We'll be able to identify where rising sea surface temperatures and ocean acidification, on the one hand, might be threatening coral reefs faster than otherwise expected. On the other hand, where these are not a significant problem other than expected, so it'll give us more granularity, if you will, on changing ocean conditions at specific sites around Hawaii rather than having to make broad generalizations. And with more granularity, with more information, we can make better management decisions. We're also going to be looking at coral reef restoration, where scientists and students will be monitoring coral reefs, identifying individual corals, for instance, that because of some genetic anomaly are better suited to resist uh, coral disease and bleaching uh, that comes with changing water conditions. bring these individuals back to the lab, propagate them, and then replant them out there in what's known as assisted evolution. This is, this is uh, a cutting edge approach to helping coral reefs withstand the changing conditions of the, of the coastal water system as a result of climate change.
0: Well, so this and sounds like, the, like it's building on some of the Ruth Gates research?
5: Absolutely, in fact, it's the Ruth Gates lab that is doing this work. And we're very excited that they're able to continue with the technicians and scientists uh, that Ruth trained still working in this direction. So
0: what does it mean when we get a, a gift like this that, that can be impactful, you know, uh, rather than just uh, a little bit here, a little bit
5: there? Well, it, it has enormous meaning because we're not starting from the ground up. This money will go into already existing world-class research programs. SOAST is one of the undiscovered jewels of the UH system. And many people are aware of SOAST. so maybe I shouldn't call it undiscovered. But I continue, you know, as interim dean here and as a, as a longtime faculty member, um, I and I know other, others of my peers continue to have people comment when they discover SOAST and the amazing, the amazing science that we're doing, they love to say, oh, I'd never heard of you before. Why don't you guys get out there more often? Well, we are out there a lot. In fact, we, we're in the media very frequently. We're doing lots of science that matters to Hawaii, and we are focused on training local students as well as international students. And we are one of the nation's top oceanographic institutes, and one of the world's top research institutes when it comes to the ocean, the atmosphere, and and the earth.
0: This grant, I guess, is the uh, uh, what the largest cash donation I guess made to UH is that right? Did I read right in the release somewhere? That's what I understand. Yeah, I'm not your awesome. ultimate
5: source on that, but um, it, it's very significant. It will, you know, it will amplify and expand already going uh, world class research that we're doing here.
0: We have been talking with Chip Fletcher, the Interim Dean of the UH School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology, about a $50 million gift from Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg that will fund research related to climate change over the next seven years. And now we reach into our mailbox to share feedback we received recently. Following a segment we ran with East West Center epidemiologist Tim Brown about the latest Omicron surge. We heard from a couple of you. Here's Lloyd from Maui, who starts with the mindset of keeping Hawaii open regardless of the record COVID case counts.
5: You followed the uh, basic idea of, well, we have to support business at all costs. And now we see what happens. And this is why it happened to be now a crisis situation because we didn't do what we needed to do when we could have done it because people had values that were involved in commerce and not values that were involved in taking care of lives and protecting society correctly as things developed. And now this is a discussion you had today about what's coming in the future. Well, we better get it together, don't you think?
6: Hi, my name is Kay Howe and I'm calling from Honolulu. Thank you so much for having thoughtful speakers on the program. My frustration is that I feel like the problem isn't so much the response from us, but rather the vaccination rate. We seem to be not talking about the percentage of the population that refuses to get vaccinated. Thus, we continue to live this nightmare daily thank you
0: and following Monday's special Kala Papa show we got this
6: hi my name is Linda Kerwin and I'm from Honolulu and I'm enjoying the Kala Papa stories I was able to visit Kalapapa Papa in the 1970s several times kind of an interesting point Wally Suinaga Naga of Olomana was a fledgling pilot at the time and we made arrangements for him to get hours in And to fly my now husband and myself over to visit our friend, Sister Jean, who's a friend of my mother's sister from Mother Mary Ann's convent in New York. And she prayed her whole life to be able to go work there. So we were even able to spend the night. Thank you. It's a fun, fun listen.
0: You know, Linda also wrote in in her email. She also shared, we even spent the night once as guests of the convent. And one time we had to make several approaches to land on the strip near the beach as there were cows on the runway. Thank you for the memories, visiting the patients, bringing Omiyagi to the nuns and anyone working or living there was such a privilege. Thanks for the feedback. Want to share yours? Email us at talkback at or call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. It was a dream come true for Big Island actor Aiden Wharton, when he got the call to join the cast of the acclaimed musical Girl from the North uh, uh, Country on Broadway this December. Wharton would be one of the show's swings, which he describes as the substitute teachers of the theater world. Swings don't go on stage every night, but they learn different, several different parts in the ensemble and principal cast, and they need to be prepared to fill in at a moment's notice. Swings have always been the backbone of Broadway, but they played an outsized role this season as Omicron has torn through the performing community, something that Wharton learned firsthand. He spoke with The Conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about his his unconventional debut.
7: I was only supposed to learn three roles with a focus on the one that I would be going on for. I was supposed to have two weeks of rehearsals starting December 6th. I was going to have the holidays off, which was great because my family was coming into New York. And I would do two weeks of performances in early January. So I was supposed to make my Broadway debut January 13th in this ensemble track. And so normally you get two Broadway debuts, you get your Broadway debut. And if that's in an ensemble track, then you also get your principal Broadway debut, which are different. I then, after my first week of rehearsals of learning my ensemble track, then I switched to learning one of the principal tracks. The show is about a sort of a guest house in Minnesota in the depression. And it sort of centers around the mother and father who run it and their two kids. And so I was learning the role of the son and we started learning it on Tuesday in the basement of the theater, just sort of walking through it in the script. And I wrote everything down. And Then on Wednesday, we had two shows, so we don't have rehearsal on Wednesdays. And on Thursday, we were doing a step through of the show with a bunch of other swings and understudies. And they asked, they're like, hey, do you want to do the principal track for this step through? And I was like, you know, I think I'd like to focus on the ensemble track, the one that I'm going to do. And then they're like, well, we actually need you to at least do it for one scene. And because it was the scene I knew least, I was like, all right, well, I'll I'll just do it all, sure. And so we do that little step through of the show. And then I left the theater for our dinner break before a music rehearsal. And I was like, I'll eat. I'll eat after the the music rehearsal once the show happens. And I walk into the theater and the stage manager calls me and I open the door to the theater and he's right there and he goes, "Okay, are you ready to make your Broadway principal debut? (laughs) And I was like, you're joking. You have to be joking. (laughs) And he was like, no, it's, you know, inconclusive and we're waiting for a second confirmation test result. And the other cover who normally would have done that track was already on for someone else. So I was the only option. So I went in and they walked me through, cause I'd never done it on the stage before. I'd never done it with any of the actual cast members before I had to get a haircut. I had about an hour, an hour and a half before the show started. So they like took me to hair and they cut my hair while I ran lines. And then they're like, do you have a bio written? And I was like, of course not. I'm not supposed to be in the show until January. So I had to write a bio and send my headshot to them and get fitted for my microphone. And it was all pretty whirlwindy, but it was, I think, a really beautiful testament to the rest of the cast. And especially my, the stage management crew and the stage managers, they call the show and they make sure that everything runs smoothly. And there was one of my stage managers, Kayla, and she, her job for that show was literally just to stand with me. And anytime I got off stage, she'd be like, okay, here's the transition. This is what you do next. At the end of the scene, you like take the table off. Really was such a wild experience. And then two days later I did the ensemble track that I had learned ahead of schedule, which was great. And then I was really fortunate that I got to do that principal track, The Sun, for seven shows in a row, which is before COVID, very unheard of. But obviously with COVID, every swings and undersides have had to jump in and just sort of fly by the seat of their pants. And it's so funny because, it, you know, it's it's your job. And yet it's so there's so much adrenaline and it's so wild that This time has been really unexpected and stressful and fun and fulfilling and great. And then ironically, I got COVID during a good period of the time when I was supposed to perform originally. Um, And the show had asked me to stay on through the holidays and stay on past. So it all worked out.
4: As someone who's done theater very casually, there's a frantic energy even when things are going very well. So I can't imagine having to pivot so quickly. And also to think, Broadway is one of the goals for many actors. Many people set their sights on Broadway, even right when they start out. To make it to Broadway and then to achieve these very specific goals for an actor on such an accelerated timeline, what was the first moment you had to really pause and absorb what you had accomplished?
7: I think there were a couple moments. I mean, I've I've been in New York now for five years. And yeah, I mean, my goal was always Broadway because that's the really most tangible goal. And especially talking to people who don't really know about theater, that's sort of all they know. They're like, well, have you been on Broadway? And so the first sort of understanding of that for me was when my agent called me and told me I got the job. And I was on 50th Street and Ninth Avenue and I had the conversation with him and hung up and just sort of like was able to hold it to myself for a little bit. Like I didn't really tell anyone for an hour. I just sort of walked around and was like, no matter what happens, no matter if I get COVID and can't do the show, no matter if everything shuts down again, this can never be taken away. I achieved this big goal, which was really beautiful and really humbling. And I look back to like, I was a you know a chubby little 6th grader at Parker School in Waimea doing Dracula as a wolf. And now to look back on that, I'm just so grateful for all the experiences that I've had. And then, of course, uh, the night of my debut, I was actually really grateful that it did happen so fast because I couldn't really have expectations. But there were a couple moments in the show, especially there's like the, the second number where a lot of us are in the background as silhouettes. And I remember standing there and it was like, it's beautifully lit, it's like this soft blue light. Uh, Kimber sprawl who plays the daughter, was singing downstage and I was just like standing there. I was like, wow, I, I did it. I am performing on a Broadway stage, which is a goal that I have been chasing for, you know, 14, 15 years.
4: Swings have played an outside role in this last season of theater, because of course we've been hit full force by a new variant of coronavirus, and many people have had to take a step back. Now, a couple weeks ago, the Broadway lead president, Charlotte St. Martin, said that some of the closures on Broadway had to do with the fact that swings or understudies might not be as experienced in those roles as others. And in my understanding, the theater community responded with uproar, talking about how important these roles are to ensuring not only the quality, but also just the duration and the integrity of shows and the amount of work that people in these positions take on. This week was actually National Swing Day, the seventh annual National Swing Day that the Actors' Equity Association celebrates just to try to get people to understand the responsibility of this position. As someone who's been working in theater for many years, but also someone who was a swing while this conversation was going on, what can you share with our listeners to help them understand the full context of this issue?
7: Yeah, I mean, being a swing and an understudy for that matter are are really thankless positions. And ironically, I mean, Charlotte St. Martin said that about swings I think the day or day after I made my debut. And I just remember being so hurt that I was like, this is a woman who represents all of the producers who make Broadway happen. And she apologized afterwards, but I was like, I've never swung a show before. This was the first show that I had ever swung. And so I, I am by definition an inexperienced swing, and was the only reason that the show that could go on. And it was just so strange to hear that. But in retrospect, I'm very grateful that she said that because because of that, there was so much uproar and now there is so much support for Swings. Everyone came out to remind everyone what Swings do because it is an oddly thankless job. I would say understudy is even more so because, you know, say you're going to see The Music Man with Hugh Jackman and his understudy is on that person has to go in knowing that an entire theater of people is wanting to see Hugh Jackman and they're going to see him. So they're already like annoyed or upset. And so there is sort of this philosophy that swings are and understudies are, are less talented or there's a reason they didn't get the lead role. And of course, there's a reason for everything. But it could be that they are young. I am younger than the people that I understudy, you know, it is my first Broadway show. It's not their first Broadway show. Like there are a bunch of reasons. And also like maybe swing skill sets are different than people who have roles. It is a very challenging operation to have a binder color coded with six different roles in it. And at any moment to be like, okay, today I'm going on for Matthew. Okay, so that's pink and I have all of this done. And I have to remember to go to stage left six instead of stage right three, which is where John goes. You know? So I think this moment has actually been really beautiful to see the entire theater community come out and be like, no, these people have such a hard job and the shows literally couldn't go on without them. And now I think people are starting to understand what that means, especially theater goers and maybe non-theatrical people. And it's also really interesting because being a swing and an understudy is ironically like a very lonely job and, and this is not to be like, oh, well, I'm very lonely at work. I'm not like the cast is incredible. But, you know, my debut was my Broadway debut. I had no time to prepare. Everything was insane. My adrenaline kept me up until 3 a.m. And for some of the cast, it was just a Thursday. Not that they didn't like come together and like really beautifully support me, but it, a swing in the understudies experience of that show is always going to be different than the rest of the cast. And they have to just come in be calm, be cool, give exactly the same performance, copy what somebody else has done, but also do their take on it, but also not do a different show. Like it, It's just a really interesting balancing act. And I personally think it's very fun. Keeps me on my toes.
0: Well, that was Broadway actor Aidan Wharton. The Big Island actor spoke with the conversation. Savannah Harriman-Pote, Girl from the North Country, has its last performance uh, this Sunday. But fear not, the show is set to reopen in April. Thank <music> you.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about membership programs at honolulumuseum.org slash join dash give.
1: On the next Fresh Air, we listen back to our interview with Ronnie Spector, lead singer of the Ronettes. She died last week. Also, we hear our 2018 interview with former Vogue creative director Andre Leon Talley the first black man to hold that position, he died Tuesday.
3: Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday.
0: Do you need a hug? Well, today happens to be National Hugging Day, and while pandemic restrictions have decreased our opportunities for personal contact over the last couple of years, The importance of the embrace remains the same. There are so many versions of the aloha hug, the quick hug, the side hug, the bear hug. One website that publishes parenting articles lists over 25 different types of hugs. The Conversations Russell Subiono reached out to University of Hawaii psychology professor Joni Sasaki to find out what makes it so important to us and to see if there are other ways to communicate what we want to say when we give a hug.
8: What is the psychology behind the hug what does it do for us
6: because people are very social beings we need social relationships physical touch like hugging that's just one part of building new friendships a relationships, maintaining those relationships that we have basically it tells somebody that you really care about them and it does that without you having to actually think about it that carefully like children will hug you right and I don't know that they're consciously thinking, I need to show you that I care, and so right. I'm going to hug you. It's just something I think we do, you know, naturally, automatically. I think for from a psychological perspective, it's something we think of as very basic and automatic or, like, easy to do, and it's because we're such social beings.
8: Do you know if it, that kind of contact is part of healthy physical and cognitive development? Is that something that a hug is important to?
6: So people vary. But in general, yes, like it's something that's very typical that you see uh, early on in child development that most kids do that and adults, but there is a lot of variance. Like you probably know people who are like more, you know, touchy type of people and people who are not as much, right? (laughs) So it's kind of like that. There's definitely variability, but general, yes, people do like some sort of physical touch. Are you a hugger? You know, I'm selective with my
8: husband, Yeah. So. moderate. Yeah, like yeah. I, yeah.
6: Yeah. I don't know about you. Yeah. Are you a hugger?
8: I think I'm similar. I think I'm pretty yeah. moderate. I grew up here so the inclination mm-hmm. to hug is a lot stronger than the inclination to shake a hand. And uh, yeah. sometimes I have to remind myself that hugging is more appropriate for more personal situations. So sometimes at work, something really cool happens and and the first my mm-hmm. first instinct is to go in for a hug, but then I have to remember, oh, wait, you know, this, this is not the right place, but <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's been interesting to kind of see how we grow and how we recognize when the time mm-hmm. is appropriate, when the time is not.
6: Yeah, totally. Yeah. You mentioned some interesting things about how like maybe at work it might, you know, be different, like a different context from like other times when it's okay to just like hug anyone next to you. But I think that is actually really important point, because it does matter, like the context, like when it works and why. And I think the Covid context, yeah, I think people recognize that, okay, I have to like moderate my behavior because of this context that we all share. But we know how to do that anyway. So I think you know how to moderate your behavior at work or like in Hawaii, like you're saying like you know it's I think more normal to hug people and stuff but there are places where it's not as normal to just like hug to somebody so I think people are also adaptive so even though humans yeah we're social we do like physical touch we also are I think generally sensitive to the context like we know how to you know look at what's around us and see what's appropriate see what's gonna be good for not just me but you too and yeah I so I do think people know how to moderate and adapt.
8: And speaking of mm-hmm. COVID restrictions especially the ones that require us to stay six feet apart in many situations, which reduces yeah. the opportunity for personal interaction. I recently read an article that describes what social scientists call affection deprivation or touch hunger. Mm-hmm. It's a state in which individuals want or need more affection than they receive. Are you aware of this and have you seen it impact us here in, in Hawaii individually and as a society?
6: You know, I've not heard that term, but I think the general idea is something very familiar that there's something that you want. It can be anything. It can be physical touch. It can be something with your relationships. can be anything. And then you're not getting that. So that's the state of deprivation. So, yeah, I, I think that that totally makes sense that, you know, there's a term for that. I do think in Hawaii it's, it's harder for people because, like you said, I do think people like to hug here or, you know, people here like to do like the cheek kissing, that kind of thing. And I think having that kind of limitation is difficult. Like I think people do feel that it's something important that's being taken away.
8: You mentioned before that not everyone needs the same amount of affectionate touch. Some people are are very comfortable not being touched or not being hugged. For those who are experiencing this need for affectionate touch, but not getting it, Do you know of any way to replicate what we typically communicate through a hug without actually hugging?
1: There are
6: definitely other things you can try. I find with those people, it's hard. Like, I think they still really want a hug. Yeah. (laughs) They want, like, a real (laughs) hug. So I will say, yeah, I'm not, like, an infectious disease expert and that kind of thing. But my understanding is it's not necessarily, like, the physical touch, right? But, like, sharing air. And so my opinion is that there are ways to have, like, safer hugs doing it outside, heads turned away from each other, masks, not too long. So to me, anyway, from what I understand, like, with current recommendations, that's actually what to to focus on is, like, there actually are, like, safe ways to have physical touch or safer ways to have physical touch. So that's what I, I usually suggest to people and not to be like, no, you can't touch anybody. But anyway, if you try to be even safer and, like, not touch, hug at all, you know, there are lower risk touches like far away elbow bumps I think people do but I you know think can be awkward but anyway if people get used to it that's the suggestion I think there are other social gestures that can kind of replicate it in a way that still can be satisfying for some people so like when you have like a really genuine warm smile towards somebody the kind where you like your eyes smile (laughs) but you can see it you know even above the mask that kind of thing that does a lot for people or like if you can communicate your excitement to see them. So like, I've seen people do like really excited waves to each other. So they're kind of like smiling, like really big and like happy waves. I've seen people do like air hug or just like genuine eye contact. Those are other social gestures that are natural and you don't have to think about. And I think kind of bumping that up a little bit can help. I think that can give similar kind of effects for people who crave that kind of nonverbal communication that somebody cares about them. I also think like just verbally saying more what you feel can be an alternative. That's harder for some people than others. Like for some people, they will never say like, I love you or something, but they they just want to hug you, you know? So that can be tough for those people. But if you're able to verbally communicate a bit more what you feel, that can be really good, you know, for yourself and for the other person who's receiving it. So Telling them, you know, it's so good to see you like saying that in a genuine way. Um, just, I guess, being more free with your verbal expression. That can be something that you can do because that's what a hug is communicating, but non verbally. So you can see, you know, can I communicate those things verbally to somebody instead? I also think in Hawaii, like, one thing that has worked for me and my family, because we don't say those kinds of things that often. And yeah, we do like hug when we see each other. but Uh, One thing that has worked during the pandemic is actually we've been having more frequent like outdoor visits, like informal chat kind of stuff. And that's been really good. I mean, I have to say, yeah, with certain like aunties and uncles, for example, they'll stop by kind of a lot, like more than I would have seen them before, because it's not just on like special holidays when we all get together. Like we don't really do that anymore, like big groups, but they'll just like stop by and we'll just like talk story outside for an hour or something. And I don't know that we would have done that before because it's like a big family get together and you know we just talk kind of briefly because there's so many people around and stuff. But also giving small gifts, that's another way to communicate and it doesn't have to be verbal, right? Like getting somebody a really small gift, something that you know that they'll like. From my family we started like baking or you know cooking things for each other. So when they stop by I know, oh you know, Uncle I made you this granola or whatever or he will drop off produce that he grew in his yard for us. So little gifts like that, I think, are another way to communicate to somebody that you're thinking about them, care about them. So yeah, those are some things I had thought of that you you can try to do instead of the hug, although it's not, I understand, the same as a hug.
0: That was UH Manoa Psychology Professor Joni Sasaki talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about hugs and what we can do to continue communicating that kind of affection amidst pandemic restrictions. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, Governor David Ige is set to give his State of the State address, outlining his priorities for his final term. What do you think lawmakers ought to focus on? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or write to us at the Talkback uh, line at uh, hawaiipublicradio.org you can also listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website our producers include Savannah harriman Pope, Russell SubiONO, and Lillian Song John DeMello provided our backyard quiz Oli and Gypsy 808 provided a swing and theme music I'm Catherine Cruz join us Monday and pick up the conversation